Child Down the Well by Chris Pritchard. The two-year-old was wedged four metres down the shaft, his parents helpless and anxious at the top. The slightest movement, and if the fall didn't kill him, he'd certainly drown. It was unseasonably warm in New South Wales on Tuesday, August 4, 1981, as farmer Peter Farr relaxed in his favourite armchair and enjoyed a drink with his friend Graham Williamson, an off-duty policeman. Outside, Peter's two-year-old son, William, laughed and shrieked as he walked with his mother and Williamson's two children on the Farr's property at Orimba near Gosford. Suddenly, just after 4pm, the two men heard screams, then low wails of terror. Peter, help! Peter's wife Janelle shouted. William's fallen down the well! Peter, a tall and sturdy man of 32, raced for the door. Hang on, he yelled. Williamson grabbed the phone. Hands shaking, he dialed Gosford Police and told them to alert the Police Rescue Squad and the state's Volunteer Rescue Association. Peter charged out to Janelle, about 100 metres from the house. He threw himself down beside his sobbing wife and peered into the hole. Dusk was near, but Peter thought he could see his son's blonde head. William, he called gently, and felt relief wash over him as the boy answered, Daddy. Then, unable to understand why his parents couldn't get him out, William whimpered, Daddy, I don't like it. It's dark. Peter considered the problem. The well had been dug only a few weeks before and was not yet in use. The borehole, 23 centimetres wide, went down 30 metres, with 18 metres of water at the bottom. William was wedged about four metres down. Something, maybe a rock jutting into the hole, was holding him. What if it gave way? What if William moved and slipped? Peter knew this was a job for a professional rescue team. If he meddled, he might make things worse. There was nothing to do but wait and hope. "'You'll be okay, William,' he said down into the hole. "'Just don't try to move.' We'll soon have you out. You're a brave boy. Then he whispered to his wife, We've got to stay calm, both of us. If William thinks we're worried, he'll get upset. Peter held his wife's face in his hands. Each knew the dread the other felt. Would they lose the joy of their lives, their only child? Pictures flashed through Janelle's mind. One moment William had been holding her hand tightly. The next... He had pulled away and feet together gone jump, jump, jumping forwards and then vanished. If only William had run, walked, skipped, anything but jumped with his tiny feet together, he would have been safe. If only. The sudden arrival of a police car interrupted her thoughts. Then came the truck of the Central Coast Volunteer Rescue Organisation with ten men. The Fars were pleased to see squad captain Bob Ives, the organisation's 31-year-old president and a close friend, sprint from the truck. The very look of him, big-framed, solid, coolly competent, gave Janelle confidence. Behind him came squad vice-captain Tom Collings and a second ten-man squad. Quickly, Ives sprawled at the well hole. How are you doing down there, young fella? he called cheerfully. You're okay, aren't you? From below came a brave but hesitant, yes. We'll soon have him out, Ives reassured the anxious parents. Privately, he was worried. William was jammed like a cork in a bottle, but any move could send the boy down the shaft. If the fall didn't kill him, he'd almost certainly drown. 
Collings fashioned a noose in a slender length of rope, attached it to a bamboo rod, and dangled it down the hole in a bid to loop it around the boy's upstretched hand. There's a rope coming down, Peter told his son. It's all right, don't be frightened. Janelle held her breath as Collings gently raised the rope. He'd missed. Several times, he lowered the noose and raised it again. At last, the rope tightened. I think we've got him, he said, and peered into the hole. The rope was round William's wrist. It's not infallible, said Ives, but it's something to hold on to in case his foothold gives way. For many years, Ives and Collings had worked together on rescues. Neither was a man to waste words. What do you think, Ives asked Collings. Do we dig? Collings nodded. Yeah, seems the only way. Find a boring machine, Ives barked to his squad. He looked at his watch. It was just 5pm. Then he dropped a tape measure into the hole. At 4.2 metres, the end rested on William's head. How tall's the lad? Ives asked Janelle. 86 centimetres, she replied. A day or two previously, she had measured him. At 5.15, Senior Constable Arthur Ackroyd of the Police Rescue Squad arrived by helicopter from the squad's headquarters in Sydney and took over supervision of the rescue operation. Just after 5.30, the Volunteer Rescue Squad switched on powerful lights and the State Emergency Service prepared tarpaulins to be raised over the hole in case of rain. An ambulance had arrived and was gently pumping oxygen into the hole from a hose pipe. By now, 130 onlookers had gathered at the site, the news having been broadcast by a local radio station. The well-boring machine arrived from a construction yard seven kilometres away, and Ackroyd marked a spot 1.5 metres down the well. That's as close as we dare go, he told Joe Alexander, the man who operated the borer. Ackroyd planned to have a shaft bored parallel to the well, then drive a tunnel to connect the two shafts just below where William was trapped. The plan demanded the utmost precision. Alexander started the boring machine. Its auger corkscrewed into the ground, cutting a hole. The earth was dangerously soft. Ackroyd was glad to see that deeper down it was hard clay, tougher for the men who had volunteered to dig the linking tunnel, but less likely to collapse. In an hour, the boring operation was completed. It was 7.05. Now came the difficult, back-breaking part, digging a connecting tunnel. On a sturdy rope, the first volunteer, Bob Crumpton of the Central Coast Volunteer Rescue Organisation, was lowered seven metres down the new shaft. His pick and shovel had shortened handles for use in the confined space. By the light of the overhead floodlights, Crumpton's eye roamed the sides of the shaft. After careful calculations were made with a compass and a tape measure, he gently chipped into a spot, holding his pick at chest height. If he kept the tunnel level, it should break into the well just below William's feet. If it inclined upwards, vibrations from the pit could loosen whatever was holding William. He would have to work with care. Crumpton used a pick and shovel, loading the clay into a bucket that was hoisted on a rope. Ackroyd decided that digging should be kept to ten minutes a man. For more than an hour, the rescuers kept up the pace, but it was slow, difficult work. Meanwhile, Ron Land a miner from Kurumbong Colliery, some 50 kilometres from Orimba, heard of the boy's plight on a television news programme. He called a colleague, Tunis van der Merwe, and the two were rushed by police car to the scene to give expert assistance. Used to digging in confined spaces, they could reach William more quickly than anyone. After assessing the situation, Land raced to the nearest colliery, 
Munmora, to collect special equipment. Then he and van der Merwe took over digging towards the boy. Peter worked to keep his son calm. Earlier, Ackroyd had noticed that whenever Janelle talked to the boy, he became distressed, wanting his mother's loving care. Ackroyd suggested that Janelle should let Peter do the talking. There are lots of men up here with great big machines and they are digging a lovely hole to get you out, Peter said, quieting William when the boy began to cry. Ba, ba, black sheep, the father continued, following it with every nursery rhyme he knew. Then he read from William's bedtime books. By now, Land and van der Merwe had been taking turns in the tunnel for almost an hour. How's it going, Ackroyd asked, as van der Merwe was hauled out once more. We're about halfway, I'd guess, the weary miner replied. Another hour at least. At this point, the two exhausted men were joined by a fellow miner, Bill Armstrong, who immediately began to dig. Twenty-five minutes later, two more Kurumbong miners, Bob McLeod and Warren Cremor, also arrived to help. Peter searched for topics to keep his son tranquil. What would you like as a very special treat for being such a brave boy, he asked. William didn't answer. Peter raised his voice and asked again. Still no response. Janelle pleaded. What's happened? What's the matter with him? They peered into the well. The blonde head seemed to move slowly up and down. The rescuers watched closely and listened. One man suddenly smiled. Panic over, he announced. From below came the clear sound of breathing. The little fellow's fallen asleep. The tunnel grew steadily, but it was still slow going. About 9.45, William woke. Peter heard some incomprehensible mumbling, then his son called out, Daddy, what time's dinner? It was the first break in five hours of tension. Minutes later, Bill Armstrong went into the tunnel for what Ackroyd hoped would be the link-up. Gently does it, Ackroyd told him. You must be close. Armstrong took a hammer and chisel now. A pick might collapse the well. His shirt lathered in sweat, he tapped gently at the clay. But now measurements revealed that they had passed the other shaft. After more calculations, Armstrong changed direction slightly. Suddenly the chisel broke through. Armstrong shouted, We're there! We're through to him! A cheer went up, but Ackroyd hushed it. Not yet, not yet, he admonished them. Let's get the lad out first. Armstrong hammered a crowbar across the well below William, then Land took over. Someone lowered an inflatable life jacket to him, and Land squeezed it through the break-in point into the well beneath the crowbar. He triggered the inflation device, but nothing happened. They tried a second jacket, and it expanded, filling the well. A few minutes was all that any rescuer could endure in the tunnel now. Next, van der Merwe worked fiercely to enlarge the break-in point. Above him, by the light of his cap lamp, he could just make out William's tiny boots. As the tunnel grew, so did the risk of a cave-in. Burly Bob McLeod, too big to work effectively in the narrow space, was ready to take charge of a rescue bid if the hole should collapse. On the surface, Janelle whispered to her husband, Can anything go wrong now? She wouldn't be happy or able to relax until she held their son safely in her arms. It's all going to be fine, Peter comforted her. But he too wasn't yet ready to relax. The worried father wished he could see William's face instead of the top of his head. Down in the airless tunnel, the hard clay still resisted. 
For two hours, all four miners worked to enlarge the small space. Then van der Merwe and Cremor entered the tunnel. As van der Merwe guided his hands, Cremor, lying on his back, cleared the remaining clay and rock holding William. Free at last, the boy slid gently into the tunnel. A small rock protruding slightly from the well's side had saved his life. Cremor pulled the boy through the tunnel and they were hoisted to the surface. As his mother hugged him, deafening cheers rose from the crowd now standing in gentle rain. Most of the people involved in the eight-hour ordeal were volunteers. Observing Janelle cuddling William with Peter's arm round her, Ackroyd said, what better reward can we have than seeing that? For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia.